What is the center of your life? Of course, we'd all like to think that God is at the center, but depending upon the season of life you're in, depending upon your most recent accomplishment, or maybe your most recent struggle, what's in the center could vary, right? It could be anything from, from your money, as we just talked about. Young people, maybe it's a new boyfriend or girlfriend that's kind of taken over every thought and every action of your life. Maybe it's your kids. You're in a season of life where your children, everything just seems to be centered around them. Maybe it's your career. Maybe you're like, hey, man, it's playoff time. I'm canceling everything. I just talked to a guy yesterday. He's taking off of work tomorrow because the Steelers game got rescheduled. I mean, come on, right? What's the center of your life? Maybe for some of you, it's an area of struggle, an area of sin and addiction that you don't want to take over your life, but does take over your life. For many of us, the thing that keeps drifting back into the middle is ourselves, right? We struggle to keep ourselves out of the center of our life. And here we are just two weeks into 2024. Wouldn't it be wonderful for this year if we could set our habits, our passions, all of our time and energy, our goals on living a God-centered life? That's what... We're going to read about this morning in 1 Samuel 15. That's the theme that we read. Sadly, we read kind of the the reverse of that because what we find today is that King Saul is living a very self-centered life. The king of Israel acknowledges God, but really, as we'll see this morning, God is not in the center. Remember, as we recap the series that we started in the fall, kind of what's going on in this period of Israel's history If you're new to living hope or or need to be reminded, the 12 tribes of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt. They're living in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham. They've settled in the land several hundred years earlier, but there's continued to be struggles and war and failed leadership of the judges. And the foreign nations that God had called them to drive out are still attacking them and there still is no peace The people asked the great prophet Samuel, Samuel, install for us a king. He'll solve our problems. He'll lead us into battle. He'll drive out our enemies. Now against Samuel's better judgment, he does in fact anoint a king, a previously unknown donkey herder by the name of Saul. Now initially things go pretty well for King Saul. He unites the 12 tribes in battle. There's military victory. He renews the kingdom, but soon Saul's leadership begins to crack. And and both in his arrogance and in his insecurity, God slips out of the center of his life. We read in the fall how As he prepared for battle against the Philistines, he got impatient and he offered an unlawful sacrifice, disobeying God and defying the prophet Samuel. And then because of of Saul's unfaithfulness, there's a prophecy that the kingship will no longer continue in Saul's family, but are going to be the king will be given to another man after God's own heart. Then we read about how Saul's own son, Jonathan, was this brave warrior and military general. He led the the army into battle, but soon after that, Saul, probably driven by some jealousy, acts unfaithfully. He makes a rash and unjust vow. And again and again, we just see Saul's heart is not in the right place. Even though he's not the king that, that the people need, chapter 14 actually ends with some highlights of Saul and highlighting his military battles and his victories as he leads the nation. But this morning, we're going to see the next big failure in Saul's life. We'll see again and again, Saul simply just does what he wants. He acknowledges God, but God is not in the center. For Saul, in many ways, God is an afterthought, and he is his primary concern. You look at at chapter 15... 
these first a few verses just to kind of set the context. The chapter opens with, with Samuel delivering a message from God, calling Saul and the army of Israel to attack a city of Amalek. Now, some little history here. When the Israelites were escaping slavery in Egypt, they're wandering through the desert. They've got no resources, no trained army. They're barely staying alive with food. They're hungry. They're weary. They're weary. The Amalekites take advantage of this. They're, the, they're a nomadic desert tribe, and they attack Israel, we read in the Old Testament, totally unprovoked. And so God curses them, and He pledges to wipe them out in judgment for their sin. But, but like many of the other tribes... Israel never fully does drive them out. In fact, in the book of Judges and even in Saul's day, as as nations all around them are continuing to war, the Amalekites are one of the many enemies that are constantly raiding Israel's territory. And so Samuel calls Saul in the opening of this chapter to remember God's pledge and to go out and to attack one of the Amalekite cities and to destroy them. And it's difficult to read, but God actually says that they're not to spare anything or anyone, that men and women and children and livestock are to be utterly destroyed. And it's a terrifying It's a terrifying and understandably difficult order for us to read there in the opening chapters, in the opening verses of this chapter. How could God ask his people to wipe out an entire city? Remember, God is creator. God is sustainer. God is judge of all the earth, of all human life. And at this period of history, God's people we're often called to be the arm of God's judgment. Now, thankfully, we are no longer in this period of redemptive history, right? We, the church, are no longer called to be the arm of God's judgment. But one day, all men, all women, all children will stand before God. Those that have have continued in rebellion will face God's judgment, the same judgment that we read about here. Now, as with all the other nations that Israel conquered in the promised land, the scriptures teach that that the call to bring judgment on them and to destroy them and drive them out, it was protecting God's people from temptation because they were not going to live in and around these rebellious, abhorrent cultures. But God was also judging them. And these cultures were were depraved. They were full of idolatry and violence. And and, uh, the weak in those cultures were abused. Things like rape and sexual depravity, the disregard for human life, even child sacrifice that was common in many of these ancient Canaanite cultures. And so God was rightfully judging them. And so in verses 4 through 6, Saul hears this call, and as difficult as it is for our ears to hear, he rallies the troops, he numbers them, and he organizes them in the valley near the city that they're going to attack. Now what's interesting is there's another tribe you read about, the Kenites, that live nearby. And Saul warns them and says, look, we're, we're about to attack Amalek, you need to flee. Interestingly, the Canaanites were, were descendant of Moses' wife, and they had actually helped them. They had shown kindness to God's people during the Exodus, and so they are going to be protected. And so with those people out of harm's way, let's pick up in verse 7 and read about this battle. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. 
Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. I'm going to pause there for a moment and look at this first section. We read here that Saul and the army of the Amalekites go out in battle just as God has has called them, excuse me, against the army of the Amalekites. And they destroy everything, right? They destroy everything. Well, except two, two things. One, they keep the king alive, right? They capture the king probably as like a trophy of war. Secondly, rather than waste all of the livestock, they, they think to themselves, wait a minute, it makes more sense if we spare the best sheep and ox and cows. Let's bring them back to our city. We'll sacrifice them to God and probably also provide some meat for the army, right? And so God, in response to this, gives Samuel another prophetic word we read in verse 10. And he's like, Samuel, I regret. I regret that I ever made Saul king of Israel. He's turned away from following me. He simply refuse, refuses to follow my commandments. Now, now Samuel hears this, and, and what's his reaction? Samuel's mad. He's, he literally yells at God all night long, right? I can imagine him being like, are you serious, God? I was against this from the beginning. I tried to talk you out of anointing a king. I tried to talk the people out of anointing a king. I did what you asked, and now you want me to go and tell tell Saul that he's no longer going to continue it king, right? I'm going to have to undo this whole thing. And so in verse 12, we read how Samuel, once he kind of vents and gets it all out, he's obedient, and so he's going to go find Saul to confront him. Now where's Saul? We find out in verse 12, oh, he's up on, on, on Mount Carmel, setting up a monument in his own honor, right? Saul is really pleased with himself. He's pleased with all that he accomplished in their military victory against Amalek. Now, verse 13, Samuel and Saul meet up with each other outside of Gilgal. And Saul is apparently expecting to be congratulated by the great prophet Samuel, right? And so he's like, blessing, Samuel. I have fulfilled the Lord's commandment. And how does Samuel reply in verse 14? Oh, really? then what's with all the sheep that I hear bleeding? What's with all the the cows and oxen that I hear lowing? And Saul's response in verse 15 is like, oh, those? Oh, well, the people, yeah, yeah, the people, they spared the best of the livestock. They brought them back. It's really just a sacrifice for the Lord. But don't worry, everything else, everything else we destroyed just as we were commanded. What's happening here with Saul? He's given in to arrogant compromise. Right? Instead of com- complete submission, he's walking in arrogance and walking in compromise. And he, I believe he's blinded. He can't even see what he's done. He's blinded by his own arrogance. He thinks he's done well. But really, he's made a grave compromise. Look, look, Samuel, look at all that I've done. Oh, oh those, oh, they're just a few sheep. We, we destroyed most, most of everything. It's just a, just a few sheep that we, we kept, right? 
He, he compromises and he justifies it. Now look, here's the thing. It's actually pretty solid reasoning. Like, like just look, think about things from Saul's perspective for a moment. Right? The whole army is going to come back from battle. They're clearly going to want to honor God, that he's given them victory, that he's protected them from a depraved enemy. And so why not bring back some of the livestock to sacrifice to God? The troops are going to need to eat. It was common to sacrifice to the Lord and then use the meat to feed the people. Right? They're clearly going to be famished after a, after a, a big battle. It makes total sense to Saul. It's just a small compromise. It makes, it makes sense. Saul's not even trying to hide it. In his arrogance, he thinks he's still following the Lord. But, but what we see is that God is not in the center. What's in the center of Saul's life? It's him. Who does he build the monument to? He builds a monument to himself. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Saul fails to completely submit to the will of God and to the commandment of God. And what we find out is that partial obedience is still disobedience. Friends, partial obedience is still disobedience. And our own arrogance often leads us to all sorts of compromises. Even when we know the will of God. We, we justify and we compromise and we cut little corners and we just sin one time a little bit because we think, well... The ends probably justify the means. People of God, the ends never justify the means. I remember sitting across from a man years ago. He was a man in the church. He had gotten engaged and he was preparing. He had bought a house and he was preparing to move in with his fiancée before they got married. And I sat with this man and I talked with him about, about the Lord and about the commandments of Scripture and about the sanctity of marriage and about the call to sexual purity and about how living with your fiancée before you're married was not going to be right in God's eyes. And you know what this man said to me? He said, I agree with you. I, I totally agree. That's what the Bible says. I agree that that's what the Bible says. But in my situation, I'm going to do something different because financially it just doesn't make sense for us to be paying for two houses for the next six months until we get married. And I talked to him about sexual purity and you know what he said? He said, well, we don't really have sex that much. I mean, it's not that much, he said. Like we, we don't, we don't, it's not every day. So, so because of, it made good financial sense, and, and because their sexual impurity was not that much, even though he affirmed the commandment of God, in his arrogance, he said, but in my situation, I'm going to do something different. The God-centered life, if your life is going to be centered on God, calls for complete submission to the will of God. This is what James writes in the New Testament chapter 4. If the Lord wills. Friends, our whole lives are in God's hands. If the Lord wills, we live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How many of us know the right thing to do? But in our arrogance, we push against the Lord's will. We push against that complete surrender. That's what Saul did and, and so many outside of God's grace. And even for those of us as we grow and struggle in maturity, these are areas that are all too relevant for us as well. Continue the story. Pick up with me in verse 16. Let's see how Samuel responds 
That Saul is making excuses. Saul is justifying himself. Listen to Samuel's response in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak! And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. And we can say amen, but it's a somber amen. What a difficult story. What a tragic period of of Israel's history. We see Saul's excuses continue. As he's justifying and rambling, Samuel just says, Stop! Saul, stop and listen to yourself. Listen to what the Lord has said to me last night. Though you are little in your own eyes, he says in verse 16 and 17, aren't you the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you as king. In other words, Samuel's saying, Saul, think about what you're doing. Think about who you are. More than that, think about who God is and what God is doing. You're the king of Israel, Saul. Doesn't that mean anything to you? And it's interesting, Samuel makes this accusation. He says, do you still have such a low view of yourself? Your actions carry weight for all of God's people. You can't just give in to the people's wishes. You can't just do what you think is right. Are you still so insignificant in your own eyes? God has called you. God has equipped you. Why are you still trying to earn favor and respect from the people of God when you're the Lord's anointed Samuel goes on in verses 18 and 19. I I imagine him pleading through tears. Saul, the Lord sent you on a mission to devote the, the sinful Amalekites to destruction, to finish them. Why didn't you just obey God's voice? It was so clear. The commandment was so clear. Yes, it was difficult. But the will of God was made known to you. Why have you done what was evil in the Lord's sight, he says. He doesn't pull any punches. It's not some little compromise To the prophet Samuel, why did you take the plunder? Why did you take some of the spoils? Now now Saul responds in verse 20. He's continuing to defend himself. He continues to think that he is right. He says, I did obey God. I went on the mission that God gave me. I did destroy the Amalekites. I did capture their king. And then what does he say in verse 21? It was the people. 
It was the people who took the best of the livestock. And besides, Samuel, hello, they just brought it back to sacrifice to God anyway. They just were trying to honor him. But Saul is just making excuses. What what did we read in verse 9? In verse 9, it clearly attributes the army's actions to Saul and the people. And here's the thing. Saul is the king. He's the king of the army. He's accountable. Even if it really was the people's actions, he's accountable for what they do. It's not a justifiable excuse. And in verse 22, Samuel says this. Really? Really, you brought this back to sacrifice to God? Do you actually think that the Lord takes more delight in sacrifices and offerings than He does in simply obeying Him? Listen, Saul, it's better to obey God than to make sacrifices. Listening to the will of the Lord is better than the choicest fat of the best ram. And he says this in verse 23, When you rebel against God, it's just as bad as the sin of divination, which is like witchcraft. He says, presumption is just as wicked as idolatry. Idolatry was like the worst sin you could do as an Israelite. And, and, and Samuel says, when you act on presumption, thinking that you know better, you might as well be an idolater. And so he sadly says in verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. What's happening? If we pull back for a minute, we can summarize it like this. Saul has gotten caught up in what I believe is is insecurity, insecure excuses, instead of acting out of confident obedience. As we've read, Saul had the clear command of God, but he acted on his own presumption instead. That's how the ESV translates this word, patsar, in the Hebrew, as presumption. Other translations render it as defiance or insubordination or arrogance. That, that word literally means to push or to press. Presumption. So here, here's what it's setting up. You know what the will of God is. Right? You know the path you're supposed to take. But as you walk, you find something that is, is difficult. And so what do you do? You push it. You presume that it shouldn't be there. You push it out of the way. You press against the will of God so that you can continue doing and going in the direction you want. That's the sin of Saul. Presumption. Arrogant defiance. Doing what you think is right. Now we've talked about Saul, how Saul is arrogant, but I think in verse 17, Samuel is accusing him of incredible insecurity. Some versions translated in the present You are so little in your own eyes. Some versions translated in the past tense. You were once little in your own eyes. Either way, I think it's clear that Saul still thinks of himself as insignificant. You remember, you go back and look at the history. Saul never thought he was qualified to be king of Israel. He never trusted God to empower him for the calling, and he still doesn't. You remember when when Samuel first picked Saul, what was his response? Me? Me? I'm from like the humblest clan in the least tribe of Israel. Why would I be king? They they set up the anointing ceremony before the nation, the coronation, right, where Saul was going to be coronated. Where Do you remember where he was? He's hiding behind a pile of luggage. Saul never thought he was the right man for the job. He never thought he had what it took. And even now, he still doesn't believe that God can do it through him. He still doesn't believe that God has equipped him and called him. He's still struggling with a low view of himself. He's not acting like the king God has anointed. He's still letting the people push him around. 
Now, some of you are unconvinced. You're like, wait a minute, this is not a guy who's insecure. He's full of himself. You're like, he's defying God's commands. He's making sacrifices that aren't authorized. We, we, we read how he made these rash vows. He's threatening to execute his own son. He's making his own decisions that go against God. This is a man who's arrogant. Listen, arrogance and insecurity are, are really two sides of the same coin. Both arrogance and insecurity show an incredible lack of faith and trust in God. And if you center your life on yourself, you'll either become insecure or you'll become arrogant. The God-centered life, the God-centered life is one that is humble and obedient. It's one where you are, yes, aware of your weaknesses, but you don't become insecure because you're more aware of how strong God is. The self-centered life is one where you're aware of your strengths. But you don't become arrogant because you're aware of how you pale in comparison to the one true God. The God-centered life trusts God and believes in God and centers his own actions, her own feelings and goals on God. But Saul has never fully trusted God. He's never embraced God's vision for who he was supposed to become. See, the opposite of insecurity is confidence. The opposite of excuses is obedience. And so that's why I say that the God-centered life lives in confident obedience. Not pushed around by the people around you. Not doubting or questioning. Not giving in to, to the will of others. And look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your compromise is supposed to be for God. It didn't matter that the sheep would be used for religious ritual because, again, partial obedience is what? It's still disobedience. If Saul, who wasn't going to please God by evading God's commands, he's the king. He's the king. If the king can't please God by compromising and excusing, what makes us think that we can? Here's Saul, who I believe has a chronically low view of himself. And the chronically low view of himself and lack of trust in God has led to a terminal condition that I call the Wayabats. You guys know this spiritual condition called the Wayabats? It goes like this. God says to destroy the city. Well, yeah, but the people keep pressuring me to spare some of the sheep. God says, you're the king. Well, yeah, but I need to keep the people happy. God says, not to spare anything. Well, yeah, but... I mean, the animals are just going to be used to sacrifice him anyway. Right? It's the spiritual condition of the... of the Well, yeah, but... So you guys ever deal with this? Anybody ever wrestle with this? God says, look, you need to set aside one 24-hour period every week to rest... You honor me when you rest. You care for yourself. You re-energize yourself. Your day off is not a time to do work. Your day off is a time to seek the Lord to rest. And you say, well, yeah, but I'm very busy right now. It's just a season. I have a lot to get done. My work is for Him anyway, right? And if I, and if I do a little bit of, of, of work while I'm at home on my computer, if, if I do a little bit of extra chores and work around the house when it's supposed to be my day off, It'll be okay. I'll have time to rest later. It's just compromise. It's just an excuse. God, we know. We just read in Second Corinthians 9. He's called us to be generous with the income that He has given us. 
And yet we still say, well, yeah, but the economy. The economy's terrible right now. Finances are really tight. I, I, we just had another kid. We've got to save for college. Groceries are going up. I, I, I just can't give right now. God, God says, speak truth. I mean, that's one of the clearest commands in all the Bible, right? Don't lie. Always tell the truth. And we find ourselves saying, well, yeah, but if I tell the truth in this situation, I'm probably going to lose my job. And I have a family to take care of. I know that God's called me to speak truth, but in this one situation, if I just evade the truth, I'll probably save my job. God says the gift of sex is the gift to be enjoyed in marriage. Wait. Hold yourselves. Keep your your bodies sanctified to the Lord. For the day that you have that gift of marriage. Well, yeah, but we're in love. We're probably going to get married soon anyway. So, right? It's the excuses. It's the compromise. For Saul, in his mind, he was able to justify what he was doing. And how often do we do the same We try to justify what we're doing. In Saul's mind, he's got a great excuse. Look, I'm compromising, yes. I'm excusing, yes. But I'm going to do it to honor the Lord. It's going to be sacrifices. Yeah, the army will get to eat some of the meat, but it'll be a big worship celebration. We'll offer all of this to God and, and he'll be honored. Listen, God does not want your excuses and he doesn't want your empty religious rituals either. He wants your heart. That's what the prophet Samuel said to Saul. That's what we read in in Psalm 51. The Lord will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Brothers and sisters, listen. God does not need, He does not want your empty, external, religious expressions. He doesn't want your sacrifices on the altar. He doesn't want your burnt offerings. Why? Why? Because the whole sacrificial system to begin with foreshadowed the one who was to come because there was another king, another king who laid down his life, who offered himself as the full and final sacrifices. And so this little game that we play, well, I'll make up for it by being more helpful around the house. I'll make up for it by being early to church. I'll make up for it by by reading more of my Bible next week. There's one sacrifice that has been made. The only sacrifice that needed to be made. We don't need hundreds and thousands of sheep and rams. We only need one sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen? Once for all. And so the scriptures say, look, just stop. Stop the game. Stop the, the self-justification. Stop the insecurity. Stop the arrogance. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we have been sanctified once and for all. 
And here's what that means. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can be free. We can be free from our, our arrogant excuses, and we can be free from our insecurities that, that try to justify ourselves with the people around us. The death of Christ frees us from that. The death of Christ frees us and purifies our motives. Our motives that are still so susceptible to sin and to compromise. And now we're empowered because Christ came and he, he died through the one sacrifice, because He rose from the dead and now fills us with His Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit to be empowered to surrender to the will of God. Now we can truly live a, a God-centered life, not because we can do it all right, not because we can eliminate our selfish motives, but because the Spirit of God, day by day, sanctifies and purifies us to walk in obedience free from all that still plagues us. Walking in that God-centered life that I believe we all so desperately want. Let's finish out this account in verse 24 and see how Saul responds to Samuel's rebuke. Samuel's just given Saul a pretty hard word, a hard word of, of rebuke and the consequences. In verse 24... Saul said to Samuel, here's his response, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And you also, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he, Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Here's what's going on. Saul seems to have a humble, repentant response, right? But as we read a little deeper, we have to ask, wait a minute, is he really heartfelt? He says, he acknowledges, I've sinned, I violated God's commandment. Because why? He tells us, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And so he says, Samuel, please pardon my sin. Please come back with me. I want to worship the Lord with you. He, he, he admits that he sinned, but he's still, he's still making excuses. He's sorry for his actions. Or is he really just sorry for the consequences of his actions? And so Samuel says, look, I'm not going to return with you because the Lord has rejected you. And we read in, in chapter 23 earlier that, that Saul's lineage, his, his children have already been rejected, that the line of the kings would not continue through his, his descendants. But now Saul himself has been rejected and, and Samuel says, your kingship will soon come to an end. Now this is deeply, deeply troubling to Saul in verse 27. He knows he needs the support of, of Samuel. If he's going to continue to have God's favor, he needs him as, a, as an ally. And so as Samuel is literally turning his back on him, he grabs the edge of his robe to hold on to Samuel and it tears. And Samuel, knowing that God never misses the opportunity for a good visual aid, 
says, Samuel, just as you have ripped my robe, so God has ripped the kingdom from you because of your unfaithfulness. And he continues in verse 29, and he says, this is a word from God, the glory of Israel. And he does not lie. God does not have regret like other humans who change their mind. In other words, Saul, this is final. God's not going to change his mind about your fate. God's not going to lie like humans do. He's not going to say he's going to do one thing and then do something else a minute later or change his mind. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't have emotions, right? Regret is an emotion. We We read in verse 11 and we see it again in verse 35. God is sorry that he's made Saul king. He does have regret as an emotion. It's the same Hebrew word. He He's grieving with sorrow what Saul has done to the people. But he's not going to change his mind. His plan is set. And that includes his plan for Saul's failed leadership. Now again, Saul pleads in verse 30, I know I've sinned. Please just come back with me. Please just honor me before the people. We can make this right. I promise. Just come back with me. Let's worship the Lord together. What is Saul really asking for? He could have asked Samuel right there, please forgive me, please honor me right here, just you and I. No, no. He wants Samuel to come back and honor him before the people. He could have said, look, Samuel, let's get down on our knees right now. Let's worship the Lord. Let's repent together privately. He says, no, no, Samuel, you come back with me and and worship the Lord with me publicly before the people. He wants Samuel on his side as an ally, but not for the right reasons. Now it's interesting, in verse 31, he pleads a second time, and Samuel does, in fact, go back with him and worship with him, but it doesn't change Saul's fate. Samuel, we read on in verses 32 to 35, Samuel resolves to see the work finished that Saul failed to do, to see God's commandment followed, and so he calls for the wicked king Agag, brings him up, and slaughters him. Literally, the Bible says, chops him up with a sword. Samuel then returns to Ramah, and we read in verse 25, the closing verse of the chapter, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What's happening? Again, Saul is still living for the people's acceptance, not for God's approval. And he has now made it clear what he really wants. He wants to be right in the eyes of the people. He wants the people to see that he still has God's favor. He's still living for other people rather than living for God. He's more concerned about his public image than his private purity. And that's what led him to disobey. We don't have to guess at his motives. Verse 24 told us, I did what I did because I feared the people and so I obeyed their voice. What does that mean? It means that Saul does not have God in the center of his life. And so he's got a major fear of man issue. And he fears what other people think of him. He fears keeping other people happy. Saul's primary motivation is his own reputation, his own approval ratings, his own legacy, and God becomes an afterthought. Now I know hearing about fear of man, hearing about somebody driven by a desire to please other people is is nothing that any of you are susceptible to because you are all far too mature and far too sanctified to care what other people think about you. None of you are driven by the fear of man, right? But I still struggle with it. I, I still care about what other people think, sometimes more than I should. I actually like it when people like me. It makes me happy to make other people happy. 
And that can, that can lead to, to devastating things, right? As we try to please other people and make other people happy and give in to their will. But the scriptures say this about us as redeemed men and women in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2, it says, Just as you have been approved by God. You, listen, you have been approved by God through the work of Christ to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Our lives are oriented around God. He's the one who tests our heart. And because we've been approved by Him, we can now live on mission for Him. We can speak the gospel. We can live for Him and Him alone. As Paul says again in Galatians, he says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I am trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But we are servants of Christ. And so in faith, we're called to center our lives on Him, to seek to please Him, to live a God-centered life today, this week, this month, this year, this one life that you've been given. Center yourselves on Him. And so as the team comes to close us out, we're reminded of the call to repent of arrogance to repent of of, of our arrogant compromise and to give ourselves fully in complete submission to God. You can today be free from your insecurity. You can walk out of here free from your insecurity, free from the need to make excuses and walk in confident obedience before the Lord. Not confident in yourself, but confident in Him. God, I'm going to do Your will regardless of what others think, regardless of where it leads me. No longer living for the acceptance of other people whether it's pleasing your spouse, pleasing your kids, pleasing your boss, getting more hits online, standing firm in God's approval. God, you have approved of me. You know me. You love me. You believe in me. You've empowered me. You've cleansed me by your spirit. And this is how Jesus lived, amen? He lived a completely God-centered life. He is our example of what this looks like, and he is the one who purifies us, who purifies our motives, who empowers us to dedicate our lives to him. And so as the team plays for us, I want to encourage you just to take some time with the Lord as we sing this next song, as we call God to be our vision for our lives, to be the Lord of our heart. And so make that prayer, whether you stand, whether you kneel, whether you sit before the Lord. You are not your own, friends. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your soul. Glorify God in your heart and your attention and your priorities and your goals. Center yourselves on Him. God, come be our vision. Be the Lord of our heart, we pray.